Mediated Conversation on SAFM. 27 minutes now to 9 the time. Time for your Mediated Conversation this Monday morning. One of the key dynamics that's already beginning to drive change in our society is artificial intelligence. And it's now becoming impossible to know what is the work of a human brain, an actual person, and what is the work of a computer or a program. And this has all sorts of implications. One of the simple problems, for example, is that a teacher won't know if the work they've received from a learner is from that learner or from an artificial intelligence. But there's so much more to it than that. If you see a video that shows the leader of political party X telling you to vote for political party Y, you won't know if that person is real or if it is the result of a deep fake created by artificial intelligence. There are many, many more problems like this. And in the end, perhaps, a lot of these problems are around maybe two separate issues. One is trying to determine what is the result of the work of a person and what is the result of work by a computer. And the other problem is what can you trust and what can you not trust, to put it another way. How can you work out what is true and what is not? At the same time, we're also seeing artificial intelligence being used in other applications. For example, patient records could be managed by artificial intelligence. Decisions about when to operate or what kind of treatment to use could be decided by a machine and not a person. What do you do if it all goes wrong? For example, if it makes an unethical decision. Well, these are some of the issues we're looking at today. First, Professor Glenda Daniels is an Associate Professor of Media Studies at Wits University. Then, Professor Stephen Sidney is a Professor of Practice at the University of Johannesburg Business School and an expert on issues like blockchain and cryptocurrencies. And then, Professor K. Manthri Mudli is a bioethicist and head of medical ethics at the University of Stellenbosch. We start then with the journalism professor, Professor Glenda Daniels. Professor Daniels, good morning and thanks for your time. And good morning, Stephen. Thanks for having me. We're moving into an era in an era in which it's becoming harder and harder to work out what is true and what is not true. What implications does this have for journalism and our public conversations generally? Indeed. So, you know, this is uh, artificial intelligence actually could make a lot of people's lives easier. But in the meanwhile, as we try to find ways to deal with the negative impacts, it's making our lives a lot harder. I'll give you an example as um, as an academic, firstly, and then, of course, in journalism. So, If you find that work is too perfect, uh, too grammatically perfect with not one mistake, then you have to be actually a little bit suspicious because everyone makes typos and the odd mistake. So often it's not contextual. So it's, it's such a perfect essay on what Mark said about the means of production or Antonio Gramsci said about hegemony, etc. And yet there's a lacking of context in the South African case. Um, and then where I say it makes life harder is you have to end up actually um, interviewing the person to see if that is what they wrote. Now that's double work. In journalism, are you there? Because it looks like my telephone's ringing. Hello. Yes, no, we're still with you, yeah. Yes, in journalism, now what you'd get are odd bylines that one has never heard of before. So journalists themselves find it difficult to work out what's been synthetically created. Then that makes it even 
harder for audiences to know that this has been put together by artificial intelligence. So, you know, the new reports by Newman, um, the, the, the Reuters report into journalism, media and technology trends predictions for 2024 says that very soon or this year, more than half of all content on the Internet is going to be synthetically created. That really made me worry. Um, so if we can't tell what is true and what is not, then, I mean, what happens to our public debates and our public conversations? Uh, you know, everyone will tell you this. Uh, it's an election year here, but it's a massive election year in democracies around the world. And if we don't know what's true anymore, then there are going to be all sorts of consequences for that. We'll believe what we want to believe instead of what is true. Absolutely. And it's going to be an atmosphere of uh, free for all, an atmosphere of disinformation and disorder. And people who are media literate will be able to, you know, work some things out. But just people who've been experienced in media for many decades, I mean, ourselves, find it difficult. You know, we have to pause before we press a retweet button or share that on WhatsApp because, you know, if it's really sensational that, um, uh, for example, some fake news recently, Cyril Ramaphosa has collapsed and he's in ICU. You just think, oh my goodness, that could well be true. And a lot of things are partially true and partially not true. In this case, it was completely untrue. He went home to work. So there... Uh, especially, as you say, during elections, and this is a big election year for many countries in the world. I think there are 60 countries that are going into elections. Politicians are actually going to be using the atmosphere to promote their own stuff um, and also confusing publics even more. Um, so publics have to be extremely wary about just taking it for granted that what they see from who they would call a trusted source, their neighbor who they know extremely well, their cousin, um, their university professor, a journalist they know down the road. Still, even so, even if it's a trusted source, you have to think twice about whether this could be true or false. It makes it, it makes life very hard, I must say. Does that take us away from an era of mass media, so everybody listening to everyone consuming the same news online, to an era of, of sort of, com of WhatsApp group communities. If you suggest people will trust people they know, the journalist who lives down the road, they're going, to, they're going to get their information from WhatsApp. And of course, it could well be false there. And that's impossible to assess. No one knows what's going on in WhatsApp groups. Absolutely. So it's WhatsApp media, uh, it's um, mass media of a different type. There's always been mass media. You know, in the past, mass media referred to when television you know, was full swing onto the stage in the 60s and 70s. That was also mass media. Mass media is also the newspapers. Now mass media is actually social media and what's on the internet. So it's just mass media of a different type, but mass media that's more complicated and making the information um, landscape more disordered, if you like. Professor Glenda Daniels, thank you. Associate Professor of Media Studies at Wits University. Really appreciate the time. Starting off your mediated conversation this morning. You're with SFM 20 minutes to nine. Continuing now with Professor Stephen Sidley, Professor at the University of Johannesburg, an author and columnist as well, an expert on things like blockchain. Professor Sidley, good morning. 
Morning. We see so much content that we cannot trust. Is there a way for us to work out what is true and what is not true? Stephen, I'm here to tell you, happily, there is a knight in shining armor on the horizon to assist in solving the problem that you've pointed out. AI, with all the wonderful things that is going to come with it, also brings some dark sides, some of which have already been described by you and Professor Daniels. For instance, the ability to produce misinformation at scale, and more importantly than just misinformation, which is maybe a post on, on, on Twitter something, the ability to construct photographs and videos which have been manipulated to such an extent and with such ingenuity that is impossible to tell, even with a human expert that has been manipulated. So, you know, the example of Ramaphosa uh, reports that uh, has been collapsed could be accompanied by a photograph of Ramaphosa being carried into an ambulance and stretcher. Nobody will be able to tell that it's false. So that misinformation at scale immediately seeds complete distrust in what was once the gold standard of trustability, which is photographs and videos. What are we going to do about that? If we have complete distrust in media, both text and photographs and videos, we are going to be in purgatory. It turns out that the entire basis of crypto, one of its most important pieces of functionality is the ability to trust. The same mathematics that underpins Bitcoin, Bitcoin can underpin anything else by making it 100% trustworthy. Let me explain how this works with the photograph. When the photograph is taken or the video, all the pixels are munged together using a technique called digital signature and it creates a digital fingerprint of that photograph. And if that photograph is ever manipulated or that video, the mathematics will cry foul. So this is not just science fiction. Sony has already come out with a camera in which is a piece of cryptography, kind of an NFT built into the camera that will digitally fingerprint the photograph or the video in that so that anybody will be able to tell with great simplicity if anything has been manipulated. And the, the wonderful irony of this to these two magisteria of the two big technological inventions of the 20th century, crypto and AI, are now intersecting where crypto will provide trust to those pieces of media uh, produced by AI. So if, for example, there was an image of, I don't know, Jacob Zuma wearing an ANC badge, for example, um, yes. there would be a way for me to look at that image and know if it was true or not. Yes, so there'll be a way for you to look at that image and know whether it was manipulated. The agreement between Sony and uh, Associated Press, which has, was announced recently, is exactly that. Associated Press, which uses many photographs, obviously, in their, their news reporting, wants to know that the photographs taken by their stringers and journalists is the original photograph. And so they teamed up with Sony to build this, this, this sort of camera NFT, which is built into the device itself, in order so that they could say to their customers around the world, these photographs are true and original. Can you still edit them? Can you crop them? Can you reshape them? Can you turn them around? Things like that. Yes, there is, a, there is a series of techniques that will retain the originality of the original image, even after it has been put through some image processing, but they will be restrained and understood and agreed to by the original creator of the image. So I realize this is early days. 
Um, would this be something that I would see in the photograph? There would be a watermark of some kind that I would know, okay, this is legit, and if it's not there, to not trust it. And and I'm sure the memes would be the ones without the watermarks. That, that would be the sort of fun stuff. Um, but then you would – but then or, – or would it be because this um, image comes from – to use your example, Associated Press, I would know about their policy and I could trust that. Um, and is there a risk that different people will use slightly different standards for this? Yeah, so the watermark is exactly the right word, Stephen, and and the, the trust would come in Associated Press guaranteeing that all their photographs have been put through this technique. Um, is there a risk that people would use different techniques and we'd get lost in, in, in that chaos and confusion of different standards? There's always a risk of that, but the standards tend to settle by, by uh, global standards bodies who uh, codify the one technique that everybody will be used. Now, there is a question is how long is this going to take? It's certainly not going to arrive in the next six months. So before November, the American elections, for instance, where this misinformation will be released at scale. But at least there is a practical solution hanging out there, which will eventually be implemented, even if there is a little bit of purgatory that we have to face in the run up to that. So that'll work for images. Will it work for videos too? Yes, it's the same technique. And audio? Same technique. Okay. The obvious exception to all of this is text, which, I mean, we've had people lying for years, so it doesn't matter now, but obviously it does matter now, because artificial intelligence is able to produce lies at such scale that that sort of changes the game. And I can't see how you would do it for text. No, you won't be able to do it for text. But as you say, we've been dealing with that since the birth of the Internet, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago. God, it's 30 years already. The birth of the Internet 30 years ago, there have been people saying things that are not true. And we've, we've found ways to try and deal with that, which has to do with consensus. And we will continue to struggle with that problem uh, into the future. In fact, it's a problem that existed well before the Internet with, with written text. People will lie. Do you think we're going to, as I mean, so so we have artificial intelligence that is responsible often for the volume and the creation of these sort of fake things. Um, right. Would we be able to use artificial intelligence to tell us if a claim or if a statement is right or wrong as well? And let me just say, sometimes I've seen texts and I've been told, no, this person said that. And I've thought to myself, I know this person. They didn't say that. The cadence is wrong. Just from looking at the text, I can see there's no way they said that. That's not how they speak. Um, would artificial intelligence be able to say, there's no way on earth that Stephen would say what you think he said? Yes. Um, although we all know that artificial intelligence right now is struggling with its own veracity. So there's this word called hallucination in artificial intelligence. And many of the big artificial and early artificial intelligence projects, when, when I say early, we're only a year into this, um, with, with large language models, say things that are not particularly true. But that problem will be solved as well. There are great many minds working on solving the problems of AI lying. When that thing gets solved, AI will be of tremendous benefit to be able to say that a piece of text is leaning true or leaning false. Um, so there's, so that, that will help us, but that will also take a little bit of time. Um, and could we then have sort of artificial intelligence for the liars that then gets ahead of that? What I'm trying to get to is, are, are we going to find that the liars are always a step ahead in this art artificial intelligence race? Stephen, it depends if you're an optimist or pessimist. <laughs> I'm, I'm unable to judge whether the, the, the bad guys get a upper hand than the good guys, but I can only give you a single analogy is that the, the black hat uh, crypto criminals and the white hat good guys in crypto keep racing to get ahead of each other 
And in fact, uh, there is good evidence to show that the good eyes will win out in the end. One can only hope that the same is true for artificial intelligence. So the risk here um, is that if we cannot trust each other, and if you cannot trust the content on this news website or this social media or this radio station, it's kind of the end of humanity, isn't it? And by that, I don't mean we're all going to die. I mean, it's the end of the era of mass communication. I realize that it's been some time now since we all consume the same information. That's fine. But it would mean that the only way that you would communicate, the only way you could trust people is if it's through people you know. And that in itself is going to be quite complicated in the future because of how I think we, the, the way we live may change. Well, it, it's the end of, of the ability to trust other humans, which is we've had with us since the dawn of humanity. But the replacement of that or the solution of that is we all have trust in mathematics. Two and two equals four, whether anybody says it does or it doesn't. And the whole drive of crypto is to embed that 100% trustability into media. Professor Stephen Sidney, thank you very much indeed. A professor at the University of Johannesburg's Business School, as you can hear, an expert on all of these subjects. In a moment, what all of this means and artificial intelligence means for ethics and bioethics. I'm talking particularly around medical ethics. We'll speak to Professor Kamanthri Mudli. That's next to you with SAFM, 11 minutes now to nine. Mediated conversation on SAFM. Continue your mediated conversation this morning around artificial intelligence and the impact that it can have on issues around trust. Professor K. Manthri Moodley is a bioethicist and head of medical ethics at the University of Stellenbosch. Professor Moodley, good morning and thanks for your time. Good morning, Stephen. I can see a situation in the future where we use artificial intelligence to make diagnoses, to actually determine what kind of treatment, what kind of patient receives what kind of treatment. Is it possible to really teach a machine or artificial intelligence ethics? <laughs> oh, that's an interesting question. Yes, well, I'm sure, you know, we will head in that direction, but the ability to balance principles and theories and to, you know, ensure that one makes the best possible decision in the face of uh, an ethical dilemma is, is quite a complex task. Um, having said that, uh, other complex information has been fed into AI technologies and built into algorithms. Much of the um, efficiency of an algorithm, however, is dependent on data. So it all depends on the type of data one has to feed in to such an algorithm in order for it to facilitate ethics decision making. But up until now, I think to a large extent, this is still being done by humans. Um, is artificial intelligence being used now as part of, you know, to sort of diagnose uh, certain conditions? Sometimes a computer may be able to come to a more accurate diagnosis than an actual person, despite what the television dramas may tell us. Uh, absolutely. Look, there have already been a number of published studies since 2017 from uh, universities like Stanford, where they have shown that uh, in certain disciplines like dermatology, for example, that uh, AI technology was able to diagnose skin conditions as well as 21 board-certified dermatologists in that particular uh, environment. Likewise, in other disciplines that are image-based, radiology, for example, uh, mammography, people who have, uh, you know, as a screening tool for breast cancer, many women go to have a mammogram. In Sweden, a, a study has recently shown that uh, AI technology is more efficient at 
screening for breast lumps than, you know, two radiographers who would normally look at the mammograms. So um, across the world, uh, it is possible for technology, uh, AI technologies to assist in diagnosis and sometimes to be better than humans in different fields. I mean, I could imagine a computer making what would seem to 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 the artificial intelligence to be a rational uh, choice. You have three people all being treated at the same time. Two of them need uh, transplants of various organs. The third one is not very well, and the computer would decide, well, I'm going to kill the third one, harvest the organs of the of that one, and give them to the two other people, which means, you know, I had three at-risk patients and two are now alive and well. Now, that to you and I would be completely unethical. How would we tell a computer that that's unethical? It would say that's a rational outcome. Absolutely. And, you know, medicine is an art (laughs) more than a science in some respects. And so uh, having human practitioners make difficult decisions, especially when one is choosing between patients or when one is trying to allocate scarce resources fairly, uh, objectivity is important, and certainly a number of important medical scientific criteria are used in the decision making. But the human practitioner also carries uh, decades of experience and is able to often make a, a better decision in some circumstances. So, yes, AI brings much hope and potential, but the human practitioner is still. Uh, very important in, in medical decision making. Are there particular sort of universal principles that might be quite easy to communicate? I presume when you you know start with medical students, there's certain things you start off with. And what's the famous one? First, do no harm. But you need various principles that people would follow. Yeah, I think I think doing no harm is critical, and and this is why what is really important for biotech companies developing AI technology. Um, safety has always been important in healthcare. Uh, we know that before we use a medication on patients, you know, these have to be rigor- rigorously tested. They have to be approved by regulatory authorities. And so any AI technology ought to be scrutinized in the same way. So safety remains an important issue and doing no harm is the foundational basis of of medical ethics and, you know, good healthcare practice. So absolutely, uh, and this is why it's important that healthcare practitioners are involved with biotech companies in developing AI technology and that our regulatory bodies in South Africa, like the, uh, like SAPRA, which regulates medicines in the country, ought to also be regulating AI technology the Health Professions Council of South Africa ought to have guidelines to guide practitioners. Professor K. Mantri Moodley, thanks very much indeed. Bioethicist and Head of Medical Ethics at the University of Stellenbosch. My thanks also to Professor Stephen Siddhi, a Professor of Practice at the University of Jansburg Business School. And starting us off today, Professor Glenda Daniels, an Associate Professor of Medical Studies, of Media Studies, excuse me, at uh, Wits University.